Hi ladies, thanks for joining me today. We're studying Matthew 4, so let's pray as we start. God, we need your help today. We want to know your word. We know it. We want to know Jesus. We want to understand what Jesus was like and why it matters for us today. So open our eyes and our hearts and help us to understand. Amen. So today we're going to talk about how our battle with sin is like dieting. Say we need to lose weight. So we make a plan on how to do it. We're going to eat less. We're going to eat better food, nutritionally better food, and we're going to exercise more. It's a simple cause and effect, right? If I do this, then this will happen, which would result in a healthier body and pants that fit better. But our resolve wanes at the first smell of freshly baked brownies or when the early morning alarm to get up and exercise goes off. Before we know it, we're elbow deep in the tub of ice cream late at night. Not that I know from personal experience. Hopefully you can easily see the connections I'm trying to make to the problem of our sin. We see our sin. We resolve not to do it again. We make a plan. We know what we need to do. But then temptation comes and we fail again. We say, I will not lie today. I won't yell again this morning. I will not give in to lustful thoughts or actions. I will not be impatient with my family. I will not envy my friend's life. I will not forsake Bible reading and prayer. I will not think bitter thoughts against that person. We have good intentions, don't we? We have the desire to do what is right, yet often we still do the wrong thing. Where this sin dieting analogy breaks down is here. With enough willpower, planning, accountability, and time, we can lose weight. It's hard, but it's possible. But sadly, we cannot go one day without sinning. It's simply beyond our human capabilities. We can have victory over certain sins. We can fight temptation. We can grow in godliness, but we will always sin. Every morning after my alarm has snoozed, and yes, I actually set my alarm 30 minutes earlier just so I can snooze it for 30 minutes. Anyone else do that? So every morning, right when I wake up, I have a habit of going immediately to God and praying to be victorious over sin and to bring him glory for that glory for that day. Yet, <clears throat> not even 10 minutes after I get up, do I give in to the sin of doubting, fear, worry, pride, vanity, etc. All before I get my morning cup of coffee. Sin happens so naturally for me. It's like breathing. And it will go on to plague me and you until we take our last breath. Have I sufficiently depressed you? I was getting low just writing this. But here's the thing. Our life is not about us. Thankfully, we are not the star of the show. If we were, it would literally be the worst show ever. Rather, this life is all about Jesus, and it's all about his kingdom. And, I'll give you a heads up, he is vastly, unequivocally, 100% not like us in regards to sin. This is the good news we need to hear, and this is what our text is about today. So I have two goals for my lesson. One is that we would understand why we need a sinless Savior. And two is that we will follow him in his kingdom work. Last week, Eva taught about John the Baptist. He was an unconventional prophet with this frank message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John was baptizing, and he was preaching that someone greater than him is going to come, and that person's going to gather his children and judge his enemies. And then that person, Jesus, appears on the scene. 
In a surprising turn of events, Jesus comes to John to be baptized himself. And as Jesus comes out of the water, the heavens open. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove, resting on Jesus, and a voice declares, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. That leads us to today's passage, chapter 4. So Matthew's narrative takes Jesus right out of his public debut and right into solitude and temptation, right out of the gathering of the Trinity and right into the presence of the devil. Look with me at Matthew 4. I'm going to read just the first two verses. Uh, Matthew 4, 1 to 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The very Spirit who came down to rest on Jesus at his baptism has now driven Jesus straight to, 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 straight to Satan to face temptation. Jesus was led to this wilderness. It's a place that harkens back to the sad history of the people of Israel. Let me take a minute to stroll through this history with you. In the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, God's people were led out of slavery in Egypt and towards a promised home. There they began receiving God's law, and ironically, there they also repeatedly broke God's law. They grumbled against God, they fought with each other, they created idols, and they worshipped these idols. In the book of Leviticus, God's people were taught how to rightly worship the one true God and how to make atonement for their sins. But in the book of Numbers, God's people wrongly worshipped the one true God, and their rebellion and sin actually led them to be banished into the wilderness instead of heading home to their promised land. In the book of Deuteronomy, 40 years in the wilderness had passed, and Moses recounts how much of a dismal failure it is. He prepares them to enter into their home. He says, love God, love others, follow God's commands, and he says lots of other good things. And about 1,400 years later, Jesus is standing in a similar wilderness. For the people of God, the wilderness was a time of testing and failing. What would it be like for the Son of God? I'll give you a hint. He does better than the Israelites. Verse 2 says that for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus went without food. And as Matthew so obviously stated it, he was hungry. Enter the devil. What is Satan doing here? We know the devil wants to destroy all that is good that God has made. He wants to turn the hearts of men continually towards evil. He wants to pervert all that is pure. He's bent on waging war against the one true God. Though Satan's not mentioned that often in the Old Testament, the devastating thing is that his handiwork has borne fruit in the heart of every single man and woman since the time of Adam and Eve. And so here's Satan standing with the Son of God, who is also the Son of Man. We'll see that three times Satan tries to entice Jesus with three different temptations, and three times Jesus does not sin. The only one failing in the wilderness this time is the tempter himself. So, temptation number one. Let's read four, chapter 4, 3 through 4. And the tempter came and said to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In this desert wilderness, food was scarce, 
But stones were not. So Satan tempts Jesus to create a meal for himself, something he hasn't had for 40 days. At first glance, it may seem like Satan is seducing Jesus with food. He is clearly very hungry, and we know his human body needs sustenance. But did you notice what Satan says to Jesus? If you are the Son of God. It's a taunt. Not to make Jesus question who he was, but to make him question by whose authority he does things. It's like Satan was saying, if you are the son of God, can't you do whatever you want? One of the commentators I read stated it helpfully this way, quote, Satan was not inviting Jesus to doubt his sonship, but to reflect on its meaning. Sonship of a living God, Satan suggested, surely means that Jesus has the power and the right to satisfy his own needs. End quote. Satan says to Jesus, turn these stones into bread. But Jesus replies to this temptation the same way he will reply to the next two. With a quote from Moses from the book of Deuteronomy, the one that we were just talking about in our little history lesson. Each quote from Jesus is a specific weapon used against a specific threat from Satan. Pay attention here. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In this quote, Moses was saying in Deuteronomy, Hey Israel, rely on the promises of God. He is sovereign and he has a plan for your good. Don't just live on bread, but on God's promised word that he will give you all you need. Don't let your need for bread cloud how you feel and how you act about obedient on obedience so jesus needs bread yes but his desire is to do the will of his father and that's what's greater in him he's obedient to his father and he's obedient to what god has planned and what does god have planned well amazingly later in matthew we'll read of a sinless savior who will become the bread of life himself offering his very flesh up as a sacrifice for our sins. It's a lesson to us. Rely on the promises of God. He will give you what you need, not when Satan says you need it, but when God says you do. Temptation number two. Satan tries again. Let's look at uh, verses five through seven. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. When the Israelites finally entered the Promised Land, they eventually built a temple in Jerusalem to worship God. Solomon built it. So we fast forward about a thousand years, and Satan brings Jesus to the pinnacle of the new temple that's in the same spot the holy city, Jerusalem. So Satan's making his second move. This time he ups his game by quoting scripture. Two can play at the scripture quoting game, he thinks. And what's he trying to do here? Well, he's quoting from Psalm 91, verses 11 to 12. Turn with me there. We're not going to read it all, but I just want you to look at it with me, and we're going to glance through it. If you see 11 to 12, the whole, well, just see how the whole... How it begins in Psalm 91.1. Oops, I can't turn to it. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And then towards the end, 11 to 12 is this 
quote that Satan uses. So what, what is Satan doing? He's taking this beautiful psalm that's declaring God's protection and care for his people, and he jabs Jesus with it. If you are the son of God, then test the care of your father. Show me that angels will come and save you. See, it's written in the scriptures that God will send, send angels to bear you up. That's what Satan's saying. But again, Jesus counters with another quote from Deuteronomy 6, 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He, Jesus is quoting Moses again, who's telling the stubborn people of Israel to stop testing God. You see, they had tested God by grumbling about drinking water. That's what that quote's referring to. So the very God who had just helped them cross through a sea of water on dry ground, they're grumbling that God isn't giving them water at the right time. Testing God says that we do not believe God is who he says he is. And here we have Jesus quoting this to Satan. Jesus has no need to put God to the test. He will not test the Father's care for him. He knows who he is, and he knows who the Father is. Yes, God could send angels to save Jesus if he threw himself off the temple. And yes, God could send 12 legions of angels to stop the men who would soon come to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and take him to his death. But Jesus was not tempted to flex his power outside of God's will. Jesus knew at any time angels could come. Rather, he chose obedience to the Father. Temptation number three. Let's look at four at chapter four, eight through eleven. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So Satan takes Jesus to some kind of miraculous viewing point in which they can see all the kingdoms of the world. Their glory was on full display. Satan makes one final temptation. All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now this temptation seems so wildly preposterous. The God who created the world is going to bow down to the devil so that he can get what he already owns. It's like a young child giving a gift to his mom only for her to open it up and see it's just something he took off her dresser and rewrapped. How can he give something that wasn't even his to give in the first place? But more striking is this. How dare the devil suggest Jesus worship him? Well, Jesus doesn't take this lightly. He commands Satan be gone. And he again quotes Moses from Deuteronomy 6. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. What did Israel do in the wilderness? They made an idol. They served another god. And Moses pleaded with them to not make the same mistakes when they went to the promised land. You shall worship the Lord your God alone, he said. But they failed. What did Jesus do in the wilderness? He declared his kingship before the devil in front of all the kingdoms of the world. He will bow down to no one. As commentator Douglas O'Donnell said, Satan was trying to make Jesus grab the crown without enduring the cross. Jesus knew the Father's way was the only way. Sorry, page was stuck. In verse 11, we see that Satan left Jesus. 
And the angels that Satan had taunted Jesus with earlier, they now come at the Father's bidding at the right time, and they minister to the needs of Jesus. So all three of these temptations, they show something profoundly important that we need to see. They show us how unlike us Jesus is. He was tempted, like we are, but he was without sin. He was perfect. Why do we need a sinless Savior? Jesus was not only victorious over temptation, but he conquered sin on the cross. We needed a sinless Savior because there had to be a perfect sacrifice to atone for sins. Look with me at Revelation 5. It's one of my favorite passages. So here, an angel is showing John a vision of what's going to happen, how the how time is going to unfold, the end times, sorry, are going to unfold. And there's a problem they encounter. They need these scrolls open that will show the ending of things, or that will begin the ending of things, but they can't find anyone worthy. So look with me at verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And so I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So Jesus is the only one worthy to open it. He's the only one who is able to conquer death because he was both God and man. He was perfect and he died in our place on the cross. We can take our sin to him because he is the only one who could do something about it. As the book of Matthew unfolds, we will understand more of what kind of king Jesus is, how he deals with the problem of our sin, and what his kingdom is all about. Let's look at the rest of the chapter. Let's look at 4, 12 to 17. I'm going to read it. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles... The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So as John's ministry is fading to the background, Jesus takes the center stage. He's now ready to begin his ministry. So Jesus leaves uh, to live in Capernaum. And Capernaum is a fishing port on the Sea of Galilee. This may not seem super important to us. What do we need to know of Middle Eastern cities and geography and towns? Sometimes we read these things and we're just not sure what to make of it, so we skim over it. Well, these towns actually really matter in this spot. It mattered because hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, Isaiah prophesied that someone would come to this specific spot and he would bring light to the darkness. So people in Isaiah's day needed the hope that one day a light would come to bring help to their sin and the evil that oppressed them. That's what Isaiah prophesied. And people in Matthew's day needed to know that Jesus came to that very city, Galilee, that he, that the very city that was spoken of hundreds of years beforehand. 
and that he would be the light. And us today, we need to know that Jesus, the sinless one, is here to bring hope and to help us in our darkness. Sometimes my kids ask, actually often they ask, how do we know the Bible's true? Well, there are lots of ways to answer this, which we don't have time to get into right now. But one thing that is helpful is to know that every time we see a scripture fulfilled, we get yet another confirmation of God's word as truth. God said to Isaiah, and then hundreds of years later, it happened. This truth should bring us great hope. In verse 17, Jesus begins to preach, and the message he bears is an echo of John's, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does the light do that came? It exposes sin, and it shows us our need to repent. If the Israelites' time in the wilderness has shown us anything, and if our own wicked hearts have shown us anything, it's that we cannot solve the problem of sin on our own. And so, a sinless man, the Son of God, arrives on the scene in Galilee, preaching a gospel of repentance and telling us all that a new kingdom is coming. We should feel hope from this. Could this be the one that is here to help us? Yes. And as unlike us as Jesus is, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews something really amazing. He says that he is actually uniquely able to sympathize with us in our weakness. So do you feel weak and tired of your sin? I do. Does it seem like there is no one who understands the weight of temptation you feel and the burdens you bear? I feel that way. Turn to Jesus. Find comfort in him. He is not some God that is sitting somewhere far off and he doesn't know what's going on with his people. He's actually living, active, and near. He understands our battle with sin because he is fully human and he endured temptation. And he actually did something about our sin because he is fully God. So Jesus identified with sinners in baptism, we learned last week. He identified with sinners in temptation. He preached a message of hope. And now in their final verses, he begins to call sinners to join his kingdom. So let's read 18 to 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, and the, son, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So here we see two sets of brothers, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and James and John. And we see they left all they had, all they knew, and they followed Jesus on the spot. Maybe you come to the story the same way I do sometimes, and you're like, okay, they stopped catching fish, and they're now catching men. That's a cute turn of phrase, Jesus. But think about this. They were walking in one direction their whole lives. They had careers, and these careers were vital to life at that time. Maybe they had wives and children and parents to support. We don't know. Then Jesus comes and he bids them to follow him. And they immediately do. Jesus gives them a whole new trajectory for their life. 
I have a hard time making decisions sometimes. I struggle to figure out what to major in in university. I changed it three times, actually. My daughter spends lots of times changing outfits in the morning. Sometimes we all have a hard time figuring out what movie to watch. Well, this story about leaving fishing, it's not about a simple change of mind. It wasn't like, I'm going to do the stinky fish job or follow the Messiah job. I'll follow the Messiah. It's so different. Jesus was actually building a kingdom, and he needed these particular men on which to build his church. So Peter, Andrew, James, and John were all with him when he died. They were the ones to take the message out to fellow Jews after the resurrection. They welcomed Gentiles into their midst. These fishers of men began to catch souls by calling them to turn to Jesus. It was indeed a much better profession. As Jesus builds his kingdom, he gathers disciples. And then, we'll see in this final passage, his fame grows. Read with me uh, verses 23 to 25. And Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease, and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Do you see who was drawn to Jesus, or more accurately, who he was drawn to? The lowest in society. Gentiles, the sick, those afflicted with diseases and pains, the demon-possessed, people with seizures and people who are paralyzed, a great crowds from everywhere came to him. You see, the Jews have been waiting for hundreds of years for someone to come and to save them from the earthly suffering they were facing. So they started coming, and the Gentiles heard too. The Messiah was here, and he was building a kingdom, but it was much different than they expected, as we'll learn in coming weeks. God created a people for his own possession, Israel, but this kingdom was based on God's law, not on the true kingdom. It was just meant to point to another kingdom, the one Jesus was bringing. We needed a better one, a more sure and lasting one, not built on good works and sacrifices for sin, but built on the righteousness of Christ. And this is something we'll look into even more as we study Matthew. Jesus surrounded himself with the sick, the lowly, the outcast, the unclean, the Jew, the Gentile. And we'll see in coming weeks that God has this amazing plan to turn the idea of what God's kingdom would be like upside down on its head. Jesus is building a humble kingdom, a lowly kingdom, not just for the chosen people Israel, but for all nations. A kingdom founded on holiness and obedience that all stems from his grace. This is the kind of kingdom we need. As we close, I encourage you to follow the sinless one. Rejoice that your sins have been paid for. We must do all we can to make Jesus' good kingdom known while we're here on earth. We need to come to him like these crowds, lowly in need, because he welcomes all of us. So, sisters, let's follow the sinless Savior and let's follow him in this kingdom work. Let's pray. God, we want to be people who know you and follow you. 
Thank you, Lord, for how you take care of our sins, how you took care of them on the cross, and how you give us a whole new righteousness that's based on who you are and not anything we do. Help us, Lord, to understand that more in the coming days as we study Matthew. In your name we pray. Amen.